this season of, of, of the calendar is great as Christians because it's about Thanksgiving and how unique a celebration Thanksgiving is, as I said, to the, to the Christian worldview, certainly. Uh, and, and even as we roll into to Christmas, this is the first of what's called Advent season. And Advent means basically a coming or the expectation or appearance. And, and how appropriate that this year, our, our Christmas musical call is called When Love Came Down, because that's what Advent is. It is the, is the coming, in a, of a sense, the expectation of Christ. And so we're going to start uh, some sustained thought about what Advent means. And, and we're doing that. We're going to be thinking about it theologically, historically, practically. And we're basing it off the four major passages that form the backbone of our Christmas special. So this morning, we're, we're looking at John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Uh, next week, and this morning, the idea really is... Uh, the kind of the, the theology of the gospel um, next week, Galatians 4, to, to see the amazing historicity, all that actually had to happen. Uh, Galatians 4 4 is an amazing text of scripture. All that actually had to happen uh, from a geopolitical, economic infrastructure perspective, which most people don't even think about when they think about the gospel, and at the right moment of time, Paul says the fullness of time that had to happen for the gospel message to spread like it did, uh, the week after that, we're going to talk about from 1 John 4.19, the practical reality that what the Advent means for us as Christians. How should it change the way we live? And then finally, um, the last week, Romans 5.8, this amazing grace that we need to continually appreciate because the love of God was poured out to us while we were yet sinners. That's what, the, what Paul says. Um, and I feel like I'm missing my, my thrust. It's over there for the play, and I feel like I need to be able to come out to you a little bit more. But uh, that's what Advent's about. Those are the four passages we're going to look at. This morning, we're going to study probably the most well-known passage of Scripture in all of, of, of Scripture. Uh, it, it has made its way from Holy Scripture to Super Bowl football games, freeway overhangs. It's even on the bottom of some cups at fast food restaurants, right? It's John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It's a passage that even if you don't go to a church, you probably have memorized because it's a very simple, uh, succinct restatement of the gospel. That's one of the first passages, if you're a Christian, we memorize and we say all the time. And now, it doesn't say everything there is to be said, obviously. It doesn't say anything about our adoption in Christ. It doesn't talk about progressive sanctification, the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, the importance of the local church in the life of the believer. But it says the most important thing to understand, to take that first step of faith, and that's putting our trust in Jesus Christ as the gift of God to us. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. As a matter of fact, so important is this singular text. The, um, Billy Graham, the, the most well-known evangelist in the later half of the 20th century, said that at every sound check, that would be the passage. You know, if you've ever listened to a concert, usually sound check people say things like, check one, check two. It's really creative, right? Check, 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 check. Billy Graham would recite John 3, 16. Now, if on some Sunday mornings you happen to be in the sanctuary, I've picked up on that pattern. And Billy said, the reason he says John 3, 16 and 17 is that if something were to go wrong that night, at least the sound technicians would have heard the gospel. So that's how important John 3, 16, 17 is. I'm going to read it, ask the Lord to be with us this morning, and then we're going to jump into the study of his word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's pray. Father, we have read words from your word that have changed the course of nations and the future of people. Where these words were so absolutely earth-shatteringly radical when Jesus said these things, when John recorded them. Father, help us to, again, as many of us have grown up with the blessing of having come to know Christ, to again recapture just the radical nature of the gospel. There is no institution that will hold up the gospel truth except the church. Help us within the church to continue to cling to it, to understand it, to clarify it, to love it, to embrace it, and proclaim it. We pray that it would honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So John 3, 16, 17, wonderful statement of the gospel because it's all here. As a matter of fact, if you look behind me on the screens, I've, I've kind of tried to highlight certain uh, conjunctions and words, either through changing the color of it, maybe underlying it, or, or highlighting it, because the, the danger of... Um, Reading a Bible in your own language, although that's a huge blessing, one of the dangers is we just read it real quick. We don't even think about it. One of the things I loved the most when I was in college learning to read the original language, like Greek and Hebrew, is you, you remember what it's like as a child. You labor over every word. Well, as a result, you soak things in. And I just wanted to, to highlight that briefly in the smallest way to show how compact, how condensed, and how powerful this passage actually is. So for, um, or because God so loved the world. Uh, the, the word translated uh, for for actually means, it can also be translated because it shows the grounds of something. So I went to 7-Eleven to get a, a, a big gulp for I was thirsty, right? Because I was thirsty, I went to 7-Eleven. Because God so loved the world. Now, now notice there, God's love always results in an action. God's love is not a mere static thing. It's not a mere love of rhetoric. God's love consistently in the scripture always results in a kind of action. God does something because he loves. And notice the incredible nature of his love, that he loved the world. In John's gospel particularly, the world has a technical sense. It doesn't just refer to this physical surroundings that we inhabit. The word world in John's gospel always refers to the darkness of a system in opposition and fallen against the things of God. That word world consistently in John's gospel means this, this in, in opposition to righteousness and so much so that that word has been used in, in older generations. You'd hear the expression that this movie, this music, this activity was so worldly, that same kind of concept. So when, God, when John writes that God loved the world, that was radical. People often read this verse and they think immediately in their mind that it was referring exclusively to the vastness of the planet, right? That God loves the world and that's true, but John's point is to highlight that God is not just a, a breadth of love, but it's a depth of love. That God loved the world, that in order that, so that he did this, and what he did about it was he gave his only son, his unique son. So God's love always results in an action, and an action of immense significance. And the reason I'm, I'm kind of doing this is that this is true of God's love throughout, from Genesis to Revelation. 
You will never not see God's love not moving towards an action and not moving in some uh, significant action and some sacrificial action as well. So he does this. Why? In order that whosoever or whoever believes, anyone, anyone at all, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, male, female, young, old, doesn't matter, anyone, anyone at all believes. This is an idea of of personal trust, uh, having a confidence in something. In John's gospel, the word uh, faith or belief is never found in the noun form. It's always a verb. In other words, it's never referring to the faith as a a collection of information. Like we would say, uh, do you understand the faith, right? We're using that as just a content, a noun. That's never the way it is in John's gospel. The word faith is always a verb. In other words, faith, belief, is always moving towards someone or towards something or away from someone or something. It's always a verb in John's gospel. Uh, personal faith, confidence, trust in who? In him. Not in our, our achievements, not in our wealth, not in our charity, not in our good works, uh, not even in our tight theological systems, but in a person named Jesus Christ. Not in our politics, none of those things, but in him, as a result, this person will not perish, but have, present tense, Right? We believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is a present tense. They will not get eternal life. They have right now. As Christians, we don't just believe in life after death. We, we believe in life before death. And, and John says it. We have eternal life. So John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 speaks of the breadth, the depth, the definition of God's love, and it also includes the response of humanity and God's goal in the whole point of it. So, so in a sense, this is clearly a gospel message that is for everyone and anyone. And we cannot rehearse it enough, right? We, we cannot rehearse it enough. We might be tempted to think, as I was at a period in life, oh, Advent season, here it comes. That means we're going to get about four or five sermons talking about Christmas things. Uh, we're going to get four or five sermons talking about the gospel, as if that was a bad thing, right? We need to rehearse the gospel. We need to understand the gospel because we are the only organization on this planet, the only people on this planet that actually will fight for the gospel, If I go off the rails, none of the mayors or city councilmen will call and say, hey, we hear that you're messing with the gospel. We'd like to talk to you about that. They don't care, right? If the church doesn't understand the gospel and keep the gospel and clarify the gospel, no one will. And so I think Advent season is a really appropriate time of year where you annually clarify the gospel and say, do we still understand this? Do we still get it? So when we think, oh, John 3, 16, 17, I kind of know that one. I can kind of check out. Absolutely not. This is actually a really good time to say, okay, do we, do we still get this? Do we still understand this? This is what we actually believe. You know, the, the importance of this experience has come home in the last six months. Some of you may know we've been looking to, to uh, hire a new preschool director for our preschool ministry, and, and one of our goals is to make that even, uh, even a more robust ministry than it has been for 40 years. We want to see another 40 years of faithful education and, and gospel teaching. 
So we thought, well, the next director, what we want is they got to be, they have to have the credentials, they need to be state licensed, they need to know how to run a preschool and be good at all those things. And we want someone who loves the gospel, who gets the, uh, the centrality of Jesus Christ and the local church. Now, that's not asking too much, is it? Be good at your job, love the Lord. It's basically what we're asking, right? Well, I've been surprised. And, and, and we have been announcing this as a Christian preschool. It's a Christian preschool, so everyone who's applying, the assumption is they're Christians. Um, I was surprised to find that during some of the interviews, our committee got a lot of applications, and probably eight or nine came for interviews. And I remember sitting there, and it occurred to me, the words of Francis Schaeffer, if you're not familiar with him, he's a writer from the 60s and 70s, a prolific writer. He, he wrote something that says something about living in a Christ-haunted culture, right? And he didn't mean that, ah, there's Jesus, I'm afraid. And what he meant by Christ-haunted was that the, the ideas of Christianity had spread so much through the culture that like a, an apparition or a ghost, you actually don't see it. It's just a presence that you're aware of, even though you can't pinpoint it. He says we have a Christ-haunted culture, so people have a sense of they think they're Christian. They think they know the gospel in a nebulous way, but they actually can't really pinpoint it. And as I was sitting there, we, we would ask the question, oh, this person was totally qualified. We said, great. So we had one committee on the qualifications, one committee to make sure it was a spiritual fit and the theology was good. And it was our, I was on that committee, so the question was, well, can, can you give us the gospel? An easy question. It was not intended to be hard. wasn't looking for a real theological explanation that Christ is the propitiation for my sin, his vicarious atonement, uh, satisfied the wrath of God, and I'm justified, and there we go. I was just looking for, I recognized I was a sinner, and I needed someone to save me, and, and God's grace and his love changed my life. I mean, really kind of basic stuff. And the response I got, and we got, the only way I could explain it was, I felt like I was a judge on a, on a Miss America pageant, and I had just asked a question, and I had 90 seconds of things coming at me, and I thought, I have no idea what you're saying right now. Was that even the question I asked? And the committee looked at each other, and one of the other guys on the committee picked up on this and wanted to make it easy, so he, he threw one right at the numbers from a different direction every chance we could. Well, if, if you were to explain the gospel to one of our kids, five, six, seven years old, or whatever it is, what would you say? Another 90 seconds of journey, pilgrimage, there was a lake in there, maybe a deer, but nothing of the gospel. And a third elder, one of the elders, he did it again. We, it was, we looked at each other, guys, what's going on? We're advertising this as a Christian preschool. What's happening? They know that it's a Christian. They say they're Christians. We can't take for granted what the gospel is. In a culture where it's relatively easy to say you're a Christian and attend the church, where we can be socialized into the gospel, we need to understand what the gospel is. And so Advent season, we, we should rename it Advent, getting the gospel season. But that's what we want to do for the next four weeks at different ways and different passages of Scripture and looking at it from different perspectives, getting to understand the gospel. And so this morning, John 3, 16, we're going to look at the breadth, the depth, and the definition of God's love. And that's in verse 16, the very first half of verse 16. And the first thing to note is that John is using the word love in a much more profound sense than we typically use the word love. Uh, we typically mean by the word love, I really like something, right? Because if you love bacon the way you love your children, really, what's the difference? 
So when John says God loves the world, he's saying that his affections and his commitments are far beyond anything we understand. And here comes the first shock, that God loves the world. Now, if that does not come as a shock to you, that is just proof to show how influenced you are by Christianity without even knowing it, maybe. The fact that in our culture, everyone thinks, well, of course God loves the world. He's God goes to show how radically the Christian message has reshaped culture and people aren't even aware of it. In antiquity, the first people who heard these words, they know what a shock this is because no God loves the entire world. No God loves everybody. Now keep in mind, the man who was hearing this, Nicodemus, was a rabbi speaking to Jesus. He would have been equally shocked. Of course, God loves the Jews, but everyone else? God loves everyone else as well? John was getting at the breadth of God's love, that God loves every nation, every tribe, every culture, every people group, because God created them all. So God's love is tied into his sovereignty as well. God loves the world. Nicodemus would have been shocked to hear that. The breadth of God's love as well as the depth of God's love. Because Nicodemus also would have been thinking, wait, how can God love this worldly system that isn't opposed to him? How can God love a world that is in rebellion to him, that breaks his covenants, that destroys his creation, defiles his holiness? How can God love the world? But Jesus says that he does. That God loves the world, that at its very core is in an opposition to him, rebels against him, defies him, and God says, I love them, and my love is deep as well as wide. And it's really against, though, the, the, not necessarily the vastness of God's love, but the depth of God's love that shines most brilliantly. That God would love that way. In this, past, this short expression, that God so loved the world explains the breadth and depth of his love, but what defines his love? John follows up in that next expression, that he gave his only son. You see, John is subtly defining what the New Testament understands as the definition of God's love. If you're a note taker, write these verses down. Galatians 2.20, Paul says this. Um, Galatians 2.20 has three distinct sections to it. This is the third section. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, what's the repeating phrase? Gave himself, gave himself, gave himself. The definition of love in the New Testament is one that gives and keeps on giving. So the first thing we note is that God's love is both wide and deep, and the second thing is that God's love always results in an action. He gave. He gave. And notice what he gives. His only son. I don't often refer to the Greek because oftentimes it's not as important, but this is interesting. It comes from the Greek word monogain, we get terms like monogamy, uh, monolithic. It, it doesn't just mean only. There's an emphasis of uniqueness to that. So, for example, uh, the word only here is placing the emphasis on Jesus' uniqueness. 
So if, if I could say, for example, uh, here's Joe, he's my only son. The emphasis is on the number. Joe is one, happens to be one of possibly more, but he's only one, so the emphasis is on the number. If I say to my wife, you are the only woman for me, the emphasis is on the uniqueness of this woman to meet all of my needs. If I'm referring to numbers when I'm saying that to my wife, I'm in a lot of trouble, right? I'm referring to her unique ability of all the women in the world to meet my needs. So when God is saying this is his only son, he's not saying, well, here's Jesus and you better love him because I don't have anybody else. No, he's saying here is my only unique son, that there is nothing like him or ever. So we have to ask, well, why is Jesus unique? He is unique because he is the God-man. He couldn't just be God, nor could he just be man to do what he did. Jesus, of necessity, needed to be both. If he were just a man, he could not atone for my sin because he would stand condemned under the same sin that condemns me. Paul says in Romans 5.12 that all die in Adam. So if he were just a man, he'd be under the same condemnation that I was. As Adam sinned and as his, my representative, his failure was reckoned to my account. If Jesus was just a man, Adam's failure would be reckoned to his account as well. We say, well, that, that's just not fair. I don't think the, I like the way that works. Well, that's the way our government works, right? I'm in the 42nd district, so Gary Miller is my representative. He represents me to our government. Whether or not I engage him is irrelevant. He represents me, and his decisions reflect my decisions. It is the way things work. Adam represented me, and his failure represented my failure. His choice represented my choice. Just as Christ's victory represents my victory. It works both ways, by the way. But if he were just God, so if he was just man, he couldn't represent me because he stands condemned like I am. If he were just God, he couldn't represent me since he bears no relation whatsoever to the guilty party. He can't be just one or the other. To pay sin's penalty, someone that had to represent both the guilty and the innocent. Someone had to be both God, fully God, and fully man. He's the unique God-man. As man, Jesus could represent the guilty party. Not only because he was not born of Adam, by the way, this is why the incarnation is so pivotal to Christian theology. It isn't just because we needed something to spice the story up, so let's make him born of a virgin. No, he needed to have full humanity, but not have the original sin handed down through man. And so the incarnation is critical so that he could represent humanity, but not be stained by Adam's sin. But also because of what theologians call his active obedience. See, when we think about the work of Christ, a lot of times we think about that, what's called the cross work of Christ. And that's what's called his passive obedience because he was nailed, he passive, uh, he was nailed to the cross, but it was his active obedience that's just as important. All his life, he never thought, said, or did anything that displeased the Heavenly Father. He never sinned. He never returned evil for evil. He, he never took the low road. He always did what was right. Even as a teenager, right? He was perfect in his obedience to the Heavenly Father. 
and live the perfect life. That is why it's because of his active obedience that his passive obedience to the cross was effectual for us because he was uniquely perfect in that way. He was both God and man. So as man, not born of a a human father, he could represent humanity, but as God, his sacrifice was worthy of the inestimable crime committed against God himself. The unique God-man. So we have the depth, excuse me, the breadth, the depth, and the definition of God's love, and it was all God, right? God loved, God gave. But John 3.16 has the human response to that, and that's the second point in verse, uh, or in 16b, that whoever believes, again, these words, we are so used to it. Nicodemus was probably sitting there, his mind was just being blown. (laughs) He's like, what is this guy saying? Whoever believes? Now, the Jews had this reversed. See, the Jews had this reversed. Only the Jews received God's salvation, and whatever you believe didn't matter as long as you were Jewish. Jesus is saying this right back on its head again and saying, God's salvation is to anyone but only those who believe. Not, and by the way, not in the kind of Disney fairy dust belief that's in our culture, right? You see all that believe and it's just believe, believe and belief kind of foolishness, one hand clapping kind of stuff. That's not the kind of belief that John is referring to. And the Bible is aware that there are different kinds of belief. Did you know that? The James chapter 2, verse 19, very clear. James says the demons believe. They have a belief, but it does them no good. The Pharisees believed in Jesus. Obviously, they saw him, but it did no good. So there's different kinds of belief. Now, I don't want to kind of get into a, an epistemological lecture here, but it is important that we understand this because there is a kind of belief that, that we can have that's distinct from the kind of belief that John's getting at. So what we have is uh, there's one kind of belief that's a kind of an isolated intellectual exercise. So you can have a whole host of, of beliefs that fall into this category that don't require anything from you or me other than mental assent. Right, so um, Russia is a country, Google is a search engine, Thanksgiving is a holiday, are examples of what's called rational facts. Rational facts, these are things we can believe, they don't require anything of me. But there are things called moral facts, and depending upon your circles, and you might have people who don't even acknowledge a moral fact, but that's for another time, but moral facts are the kinds of beliefs that compel or restrict certain kinds of behavior on the basis of that belief. You understand? So, so for example, uh, I have a, a, a belief, I believe the moral fact that torturing babies for fun is always wrong. Okay? I'm using an extreme version of that. By the way, if you ever meet someone who doesn't believe moral absolutes, ask them, is it ever right in any context to torture a baby for fun? Um, the point is, the way I believe that fact is different from the way I believe the fact that Russia is a country. All right, let me explain that. If someone doesn't believe that Russia is a country, I have no obligation to correct that belief unless there's, unless there's other factors at play, like I'm their geography teacher. But the fact that someone's torturing a baby for fun in my presence, I am obligated, regardless of any other contributing factors, whether or not I'm the, parents, uh, the child's parent, I'm the babysitter or caregiver, if that's going on, my belief in that fact compels me to stop it. So the way I believe that fact is different from the way I believe the other fact. Does that make sense? 
One is just mental assent. I believe it. Yeah, Google's a search engine. One bleeds into what's called conviction, and it shapes the interior of my life, right? And it compels or restricts the actions of my life. That's what John's talking about, believing in Christ such that it shapes the very fabric of the way you live your life, that these beliefs form a web that that define the way you live. Somebody believes but, but notice, there are people who have those beliefs, right? There, there are people who have those kinds of beliefs. And they were around in Jesus' time. And we see it almost in, in our culture that, that there are these beliefs, but John says, believe in him. You have this kind of confidence. You have this kind of conviction. But it's in Jesus Christ. You have eternal life. See, Christianity is not a set of facts, but belief in a person. Let me read you something from a commentary I saw this week. Believing, therefore, plays a central role in the whole system of John's theology of salvation. It is a response to revelation, and it results in knowledge of the truth. Here we go. But since that revelation has come to us in a person who is is himself the truth, neither faith nor knowledge can be understood primarily in intellectual terms. So what he's saying is that because Jesus himself is the embodiment of truth, our just mental assent to truths doesn't work because it's always relational. And John proves that by his use of the verb. It's always this kind of verb action. You're believing in something. Just as whoever, anybody, doesn't have to be, they don't have to be Jewish. It can be anybody. But if they're willing to believe, to be all in on Jesus Christ, they have eternal life. So we have the the breadth, the depth, the definition of God's love. We have our our response and the result of that response. Finally, verse 17, the goal of God's love, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Our salvation, that's the goal. This is why the gospel has had such universal appeal through every culture, And every time, every man or woman is seeking some kind of salvation. Whether or not they would use those terms, whether or not they're even aware, they are seeking to save themselves. They are seeking to be saved. Everyone's aware that something's horribly wrong and looking for someone or something to make it right. right. So whether you're religious in that pursuit or political in that pursuit, or an activist. It's the same kind of life script that's motivating every one of those. Something's wrong. I need something to make it right, and usually I'm going to play a part in that somehow. And so if you just look a little below the surface in in politics and religions and activism, it's the same kinds of dynamics that's driving people. I don't want to illustrate it as I wrap up. Uh, with a couple illustrations, one from the financial world and one from the artistic world. Uh, Warren Buffett, if you're familiar with him, he's one of the most wealthiest men uh, on the planet. Uh, In 2006, I think he was the second richest man who donated 85% of his $44 billion personal fortune to five charitable foundations. Uh, When asked about this, Buffett said, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this sure is a great way. So according to Buffett, the way you get to heaven is by charitable deeds, and and, and in his case, buying your way in. 
The second, it's a bit of a lengthier quote, but really insightful. I want to read the whole thing. It comes from Michael Crichton, writer, director, author, Jurassic Park. Uh, he writes this, and, and, and Crichton is not a Christian by any means. When he wrote this article, uh, it rocked the... Uh, the, the, the communities that he traffics in, the entertainment world, the, the kind of more liberal side of culture. But I, I applaud him for his bravery in writing these words. This is what he says. Keep in mind, these are the words of Michael Crichton, not necessarily my own. I studied anthropology in college, and one of the things I learned was that certain human social structures always reappear. They can't be eliminated from society. One of these structures is religion. Today, it is said we live in a secular society in which many people, the best people, the most enlightened people, do not believe in any religion. But I think that you cannot eliminate religion from the psyche of mankind. If you suppress it in one form, it merely reemerges in another form. You cannot believe in God, but you still have to believe in something that gives meaning to your life and shapes your sense of the world. Such a belief is religious. Today, one of the most powerful religions in the Western world is environmentalism. Environmentalism seems to be the religion of choice for urban atheists. Why do I say it's a religion? Just look at the beliefs. If you look carefully, he writes, you see that environmentalism is in fact a perfect 21st century remapping of traditional Judeo-Christian beliefs and myths. There's an initial Eden, a paradise, a state of grace and unity with nature, there's a fall from grace into a state of pollution as a result of eating from the tree of industrial knowledge. And as a result of our actions, there is a judgment day coming for all of us in the form of global warming. We are all energy sinners doomed to die unless we seek salvation, salvation which is now called sustainability. Sustainability is salvation in the church of the environment, just as organic food is its communion, recycling are its spiritual disciplines, and that pesticide-free wafer that the right people with the right beliefs imbibe. Now, he goes on that the article is even more insightful, more penetrating, and just more shocking considering the source. But I think what, what Crichton and Buffett help us to realize is that everyone's looking for some kind of salvation. Just some have more traditional ways of doing it. Others are not so traditional. But if you just scratch under the surface, it's all the same drive. But the gospel teaches something entirely, fundamentally different. That salvation is a free gift. Simply that comes from belief, a confidence, and trust, a personal trust, in what Christ has done and who he is and not on myself and not on my ability to do anything. I conclude with this last illustration. It was about a, a, a British car, uh, conference with professors of comparative religions all discussing what, if any, unique contribution Christianity brings to comparative religions. They began eliminating possibilities. They started with the incarnation. They thought that wouldn't count because other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. They moved on to the resurrection. Again, other religions had accounts of a return from death. So the de debate went on for some time until Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked. And he heard in reply what his colleagues were discussing, Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Well, Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the experts in comparative religions had to agree. 
The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each offers a way to earn approval. Only the gospel dares to make God's love unconditional. And that's the gospel we can never let go of or lose. Let's pray. The message titled, When Love Came Down, was given by Pastor Rick Roadheaver at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is the first of four in our Advent series titled, When Love Came Down. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.cccLH.org.